Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Steve Wasserman has been the editorial director of New Republic Books, Hill and Wang, Times Books, and most recently, Heyday, an independent publisher in Berkeley. He was also the editor of the LA Times Sunday Book Review, an editor-at-large for Yale University Press, and a literary agent. In this 2012 presentation, Wasserman talks about his friend Christopher Hitchens, who passed away in 2011. Well, I'm most grateful to Ren and the Institute for indulging yourselves and me in uh, a chance to talk about Christopher, since I have not spoken publicly about Christopher, and even very much privately, except to a very few people uh, since his death on December 15th. But it gives me a chance to at least work out in conversation with you just some thoughts about Christopher, his work, his life, what he may have meant. I need to put all my cards, or at least most of them, on the table with regard to Christopher. I loved Christopher, I have to say. We met 32 years ago in a very bad Chinese restaurant in Soho in London, introduced by a mutual friend, Robin Blackburn, of the New Left Review, who, after I'd visited the New Left Review's offices, he said, I, I, I have a friend I think you'd very much like to, to meet. I think you'd get on. He's at the New Statesman. Um, let me ring him. Let's meet. And so we did. And it was kind of love at first sight. I was then the deputy editor of the LA Times op-ed page in my infancy. And Christopher began to write for me quite regularly. And over the next 32 years, we were very much in each other's uh, lives, both as friends, as comrades, and as uh, friendly and fierce disputants around a number of issues, principally Iraq, but there were other issues as well. And there were the usual three o'clock in the morning conversations about these things. Again, I can't claim any special relation with regard to that. He enjoyed that kind of relationship with many other people. I was his first American publisher. I was then publisher and editorial director of an imprint at Farris, Strauss and Drew called Hill and Wang and suggested to him that he'd written quite enough for the nation and other magazines, including Ben Sonnenberg's Grand Street. And those essays seemed to be pretty pretty good and worthy of being bound together in a hardcover iteration. And so in 89, we published a book called Prepared for the Worst, Essays and Other Minority Reports, after the title of his column in The Nation. And we would go on to publish several other books together, including one called Anglo-American Ironies, which I had suggested to him since I was bemused by the ways in which many people in this country, 200 years or so after a revolt against British monarchy, had nonetheless so inserted all things English into the frontal lobe of their consciousness that they had kind of made a fetish of adoring certain aspects of British monarchical rule. And I thought this was at least an irony and maybe more uh, worth commenting on. And so Christopher tackled that in a in probably what is his least read book, because oddly, unlike so many of the other books, it, I think, almost entirely lacks a sense of humor. And maybe this is because it was the first thing, to the best of my knowledge, that he was compelled to rewrite. He was famous for being able, when he did sit down to write, which he did every day, that his first draft was usually the best draft. And he was a kind of Stakhanovite of literary production, baffling almost everyone else in his generational cohort and some others who were constantly bewildered and, and amazed uh, since they rarely actually saw him reading a book 
Instead, he would usually have a glass of some congenial liquid in hand and seemed to enjoy conversation almost as much or maybe more than actual writing. But the truth of the matter was is that he was one of the best functioning alcoholics I'd ever met, prided himself on never missing a deadline. And uh, when years ago, in, in, I think it was, must have been in 79 or 80, I, then, then at the LA Times, and he was still living in London, he was going to deliver to me a, a piece for the op-ed page of about the usual 750 words on something egregious that Margaret Thatcher had done. And the deadline for the Sunday edition of the paper was on a Wednesday. And uh, noon came and noon went. And these were the days before electronic mail. I mean, we were expecting to get something faxed to us. And exceptionally, it didn't arrive. And then I tried to reach him on the phone there was no answering machine, just rang and rang and rang. And then Thursday came and Thursday went. And since this had never happened before, we left open the space on the page, but we were in the composing room. And my boss said, if noon comes and the piece isn't here, we really will have to just put something else in there. So finally I ring and ring and, and the phone rings in London and it's about 11 o'clock our time. And a very groggy hitch answers the phone. And I say to him, well, what the piece? And he says, uh, what piece? I said, well, the one that, you know, you were supposed to deliver. He said, I was. I said, yeah. Well, what, what's happened? He said, well, I think I've, I've, I've lost my memory or something. A couple of days ago, uh, there was a, a woman in distress across the street. And I went to her aid and a couple of thugs roughed me up. I had to go to the police. And I really haven't quite been myself. I was listening to this, I thought, well, this is a load of bullshit. I mean, this is the kind of thing, in my experience, writers, some writers might say if they tried to wriggle out of the assignment. But in Christopher's case, I'd never, ever heard anything like this. And then he says, well, what was the piece to have been on? I tell him. He says, when did you need it? I said, well, I needed it in one hour. He said, how long? I told him. He said, give me an hour, you'll have your piece. An hour later, he rings, dictates the piece. Nothing needs to be done to it except print it. I believed his story. I used to think that when we first met, we were drawn to each other by reasons which had to do with a mutually shared ideological disposition, that we were more or less on the same page politically. The conceit, even in 1979, was somehow that those of us who were remnants of something we were pleased to call the movement would somehow recognize each other and without ever really actually saying so, would find ourselves enrolled in this larger, even global community of people seeking to upend the old order and to introduce wherever we could notions of uh, social justice, let's say, as, as broadly conceived as, as that might be. Over the years, though, I came to think that that was mistaken, that it wasn't so much principles of explicit political leanings that bound us together, but it was a regard for a mutually shared temperament. And in Christopher's case particularly, I think the ideological inclinations were a conceit which was tethered to a temperament which he evinced from a very early age. And indeed, his brother Peter, whom I've never met, said much the same in the piece that he wrote immediately within hours, really, of, of Christopher's death, in which he recalled a boyhood event of uh, Christopher was a, a, a year or two older than, than Peter, in which they had clambered onto the top of some neighbor's roof and 
they had to leap from the roof to some other roof. Peter clung to the roof, petrified that this was really a crazy thing to do, and he didn't think he could do it. Christopher turned to him, his older brother, and said, no, you can do it. Watch me do it, and then just follow me. Christopher leaped safely, and then his brother was inspired to do it. One thing Christopher had in abundance was physical courage. He was not afraid of a fight. He proved it over and over again. This was probably an admirable virtue up to a point, and it was probably his most major defect because he was something of a bully, as everyone in this room probably knows. And the one thing I'm going to do in this little talk, because I think it's a sign of respect to him, even if some of you might regard it as a betrayal of my relation to him as an agent and would probably shudder to think, well, shouldn't uh, you know people this close only say good things about the blessed departed. But the truth is, like everyone, he was a mixed bag. Uh, he was no saint. And there's much he has to answer for. The boldness of the temperament was attractive, at least it was to me, because there was a mischievous quality to him, tethered very often to the conceit of high principle that I respected. I think Eric Alterman put it rather nicely in a review of Hitch 22, uh, Christopher's memoir published two years ago, Eric put it rather nicely in a piece for Dissent when he said of Christopher that however gifted he may have been, he was one of those people who seemed to use his talent for his work but reserved his genius for his life. And there's something to that. He could be fierce in his polemics. He was probably, probably the most gifted polemicist of my generation. But privately, he could be the most charming of people. There was a good deal of uh, rather hagiographic articles written in the immediate aftermath of his death. And that was sort of unfortunate to a certain extent. I mean, understandable, because some of the oxygen had gone out of the room with Christopher's demise. The thing uh, about that hagiography, it misses the point that the warts and all person was part of his charm, because there was an aspect that was human, all too human in him, that was very engaging. There were a lot of things said about Christopher that, in my view, were simply false, and they're canards. In my experience, Christopher never did anything, whether right-thinking or wrong-headed, for reasons having to do with money. He liked money, but it didn't interest him. It's not why he got up in the morning. It's not why he took the stands he did. And there was a lot of blather on the Internet that suggested that his various political twists and turns were motivated by some desire to keep getting invitations at Tony Georgetown cocktail parties. It, it could not be further from the, from the truth. Christopher, to the end of his life, continued to write for almost anybody who asked him to write. He wanted a, as large a payday as possible, but if it really was, it was, you know, the $150 for dissent or whatever it was going to be, that'll be what it, what it was. He would also write for free to places like Critical Inquiry and other places. His career, his so-called career, didn't really take off in a major way until uh, the writing and publishing of God is Not Great in 2007. Prior to that, aside from columns for Vanity Fair, he lived from hand to mouth. He was, of course, very devoted to getting up every day and writing and had made a very successful living doing it, but there was no regular gig, again, aside from the, the Vanity Fair columns, and then latterly for Ben Schwartz at The Atlantic, uh, when he was doing those literary essays. One of the things that 
was much commented upon. A lot of people commented about, about his so-called vast erudition. But the truth of the matter is, I think it should be said, Christopher was interested in a lot of things, but not as many things as his greatest fans have us believe. He was very interested in a certain kind of politics. He was very interested in Anglo-American letters, but he wasn't much interested in almost... I mean, if you look at the writing, he didn't really talk very much about Latin American literature, the literatures of East and Central Europe. Africa interested him up to a point, the fight against apartheid, latterly the, the fight against Islamist fanaticism. Asian literature didn't interest him very much. In fact, it might even be said, and I say it at the risk of making a coarse generalization, despite the brilliance of a lot of the literary criticism, it's rather narrowly framed around certain central figures, and he was interested in literature as politics by other means. The aesthetic side of Christopher could be shockingly abbreviated. For example, he, he knew nothing about and cared nothing about painting. Music, aside from Bob Dylan, was just noise to him. To go back to the story of the Anglo-American ironies, and, and Jim Miller know, knows this story. So he undertook to do that book. At that time, I, as I say, I was presiding over Hill and Wang, and David Reef was an editor at Farrah Strauss and Drew, and I had introduced Christopher to David, and we kind of played a Mutt and Jeff routine with Christopher. Christopher goes away, spends a year writing this book, comes back, 400 pages, double-spaced, I read the book. It's good so far as it goes. We've got Kipling there, and we've got Whitman, and we've got Woodrow Wilson, and we've got, we got a lot of other things, but I read the book, and the words Mick Jagger appear not at all. And I think, how can you have a whole book about the way English culture has inserted itself into the frontal lobe of American contemporary consciousness and not talk about rock and roll in some way and what it might mean? So Christopher comes up from Washington where he lived, and we take him out to Periali, and we sit down and we say, well, we've read the book, and, you know, we have actually, we think it's good up to a point, but there's this other part that we think is really missing. He hears this all and then says... I take the point, but what can I say? Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, you know, people have their opinions. I don't really have an opinion. I mean, some people think it's good. Some people don't care for it. I have nothing to say about it. So we kind of looked at each other and said, really nothing to say? No, I have nothing to say. So, and he didn't have much to say about any number of kinds of things. How much of Christopher's work will be read how much of it will survive 10, 20, 30 years from now? I think some of the essays might still be read, but I think there's probably not a single one that'll be assigned like some of the best of Orwell's work, even though people make some comparison. And certainly that was an aspiration of his. I think of Christopher more as in the tradition of those grand nudniks like Dr. Johnson or Ambrose Bierce or H.L. Mencken. Is Mencken really read today? Not really, I think, I would think. Christopher may be read by people who are interested in the particular moment that he seemed to flourish as having been representative to a very fine point of a particular moment in American political culture, and that his rise was by no means, if I can use this word with respect to Christopher, foreordained, and it occurred around the appearance of God is Not Great, a book which happened to appear at a moment when the zeitgeist seemed particularly welcoming. But even, even then, it wasn't a so clear, at least to us early on, 
whether that book would be successful. We owed that book, and again, I take the opportunity to thank Jim Miller. The seed for that book came from an issue of Daedalus, which Jim had edited back in 2003 or four, an issue on, on religion and secularism, and he had invited Christopher to write a piece for it. And the Daedalus issue was sort of laid by my bedside, gathering some dust. It was by my bedside for like two years. And then when I resigned from the LA Times on Friday the 13th, day much like today, May of 2005, over the weekend, the phone rang and it was Christopher calling saying, Steve, do I intuit that you may be in need of a client or two? And I said, well, you intuit rightly. And he, and he said, well, what am I, chopped liver? And I said, no, no, I'd be happy to represent you. And in fact, I even know what your next book is going to be. He said, what, what my dear fellow, what, what would that be? I said, well, it's a book against God. You've been writing it all your life. And in fact, you've already written the proposal to it. It was that essay in, in Daedalus. Uh, to return to the question about mercenary motives. So I found myself in New York in August of that year, making a kind of Sherman's March through publisher's suites, representing about two and a half people. Everybody professed to be interested in what Christopher might write, although not very many people really by this time believed in him as a book writer. And in truth, he wasn't really a book writer. He was a pamphleteer. I say that all honor to the pamphleteerists really an essay on Thomas Jefferson, an essay on Tom Paine, uh, collections of essays. And indeed, his former agent, Andrew Wiley, had rather given up on Christopher, thinking that you can't sell Christopher for very much money because he's just, it's just small, it's small beer. So I went around and people were interested. And, they, and I said, well, they said, what is he writing? And I said, he's doing a book against God. People perked up and everybody seemed to be very interested in that. And then, of course, they said very quickly, oh, but what's the argument? I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, what about God? And then I, doing my best to channel Christopher, making it up, said, oh, well, the book is in three parts. The first is against the Judeo-Christian nonsense. The second part is against the Islamic rubbish. Uh, the third part is an evisceration of the Buddhist claptrap. I mean, and then I would say to people, I mean, really, do, do any of us really want to see yet another picture of Richard Gere with the Dalai Lama? Aren't we just going to all throw up? People would say, oh, well, I, we would like to read that book. So long story, slightly longer. At the end of August, Christopher, for one reason or another, found himself giving some talk in Los Angeles. And we met, I think it was Vanity Fair, was putting him up at the um, rather terrifying hotel on the Sunset Strip, the Madrion, which if ever there's a remake of Godard's Alphaville, it'll be set there. You know, various bionically rearranged women and men arrayed around the, the, the pool, all of them looking like they're packing heat. He's chain-smoking the usual Rothmans, the Johnny Walker Black Label in hand. I had the evening before, my newly issued Blackberry began thrumming insistently against my thigh, and it was young Jonathan Karp, who'd been an editor where I had met him years before at Random House, but who now was in charge of his own imprint called 12. And he was one of the people I had met, and he was emailing me saying, I've been thinking a lot about this Christopher Hitchens anti-God book, and I just want to say that when there's a proposal, because we didn't have a proposal, I'd really like to be included in the submission. And I found myself, as newly minted baby agent, typing on this odd modern African thumb piano called the Blackberry, saying, well, if you feel that strongly about it, you know, we might even welcome a preemptive offer in advance of a proposal. Comes back. I think I would like to make such an offer. So he puts some money on the table. We have a little toing and froing, and the money is 
doubled and tripled and suddenly there's quite a lot of it on the on the table so at lunch with christopher poolside at the Madrian, I said, as your friend and now your agent, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring to your attention a bit of money on the table here for this book, which you haven't yet even written a proposal. I can tell you that if you bothered to actually write a proposal, because we haven't even by any means exhausted the number of people I know who admire your work, like Sonny Mehta over at Knopf, I actually think this sum could be doubled yet again. And he looks at me very evenly and says, Steve, in most countries in the world, this is a sum that would be regarded as indecent. And while I'm known as a pretty good propagandist on behalf of my own causes, I would so much rather write the bloody book than write its flapjacket copy. Can't we just say yes? And if we do, and if the book works, won't we see the money on the back end? I looked at him and I said, this is a degree of sobriety that... Uh, <laughs> in the world that we're living in would not be regarded as altogether sound or he would not be a person as right mind uh, in the world of modern agenting and, and even publishing, much less authors. So I said, no, you're, you're absolutely right. He said, well, let's just say yes. So that's what we did. And then discovered to slightly our chagrin that fall that Richard, and which I only discovered looking through the pages of, the, of another publisher's catalog, that Richard Dawkins, who... At this juncture, Christopher had never met, was up to a very much the same book, which was being published that fall. And Christopher had just begun writing his. His wasn't due till the following May. And we looked at that thinking, well, either there goes everything, or Christopher can bring something to this, this debate that resembles wit. The book was very successful. One of the reasons it was successful, and I think this has something to do with the outsized impact that Christopher's work and life had on this telegenic moment. He had become a rather favored go-to person by all the chat shows. And his living in Washington helped that because he was a cab ride away from studios like Brian Lamb's C-SPAN and other chat shows. And he was very good on his feet. I mean, Christopher had the gift, uh, which eludes most of us, the thing that we really most wanted to say that would have been the wittiest thing to say only occurs to us later, to our regret. But in his case, it seemed to occur right at the moment when it was demanded. For instance, when God Was Not Great was published, within the first 10 days or two weeks of its publication, the Reverend Jerry Falwell collapsed and died in his office, which fact alone might have been enough to disprove Christopher's entire thesis. He found himself invited onto the Sean Hannity show on Fox News, along with the estimable Ralph Reed, invited to give his opinion of the late Jerry Falwell. Well, Christopher fulminated, as you might expect, against this huckster, this con artist, this completely evil man who had a lot to answer for, and he was on a tear about it. And the camera panned over to Hannity, who was getting increasingly red in the face. Finally, Hannity erupts. How dare you speak ill of this man in this way? Have you no regard for his family? I mean, have you no decency? And uh, Christopher looked at him and said, how dare you invite me onto your show, ask your listeners to hear my candid opinion, an opinion, by the way, I had the temerity to express to his face when he was alive. And after all, he said, there was so little to this guy that had they bothered to administer an enema before he collapsed, they could have buried the remainder in a matchbox. <laughs> At which point, the blogosphere lights up 
and thousands of copies of the book were sold. It's an imperishable moment, almost rivaling the Buckley-Vidal contretemps. Over time, Christopher, I would say politically, if you pressed him, if he had to choose between the ideals of equality and the ideals of liberty, liberty every time. And it was the ideals of secularism, libertarianism, internationalism, and solidarity that motivated him to a very considerable extent. The thing that I think largely accounts for the way in which, rather unusually, he was able to engender many younger readers. And it was quite striking when you would go to his appearances around the country and watch him speak. There were many, many people, 35 and under, who would flock to this. And I often wondered, what is it that they seem to be admiring about Christopher? Is it his opinions with regard to American intervention in, as he liked to put it, Mesopotamia? Was it really his fierce and questing against God? Was it, you know, this or that opinion? I think it had less to do with any particular position than it had to do with the admiration of a temperament, which is rare to find. He seemed to behave like a man unafraid, unafraid of giving offense. He would walk on to the Bill Maher show, cigarette in hand. The guards would say, you can't smoke in here. No, I can. I can smoke. I will smoke. He was actually someone who actually believed people actually made a difference, that individuals actually made history. He could see it in his own life. I can change the rules. The rules don't have to imply. Just do it. With that kind of chutzpah, you can do quite a lot. People admired that. I saw him innumerable times on television. If he, he decided that he thought the, the questions were now beneath contempt and they were going to a place that was just insulting to everyone's intelligence, he would say, I don't have to take this. I'm quite happy to take off the microphone and walk out. Well, no one kind of walks out on television. I mean, that's the secular god of our time, before which everyone seems to bow. That aroused admiration, because he, in some measure, seemed to be a man who was living life to the full and tilting at the windmills full throttle. Everybody else looked like they were trimming their sails, looking for the main chance. His critics would tell you that his befriending of Paul Wolfowitz his apologetics for the administration's intervention in Iraq, particularly apologetics by the way in which Christopher was far more articulate and eloquent about reasons for such intervention than the administration ever se seemed to be able to muster, partly because Christopher came at it from a left-wing perspective. And in that sense, one of the things that I think was most misunderstood about Christopher by his critics, who would insinuate that he'd made a kind of Malcolm Muggeridge transition in his early dotage from left to right, is the ways in which Christopher, to a very considerable extent, I think, was ever loyal to his Trotskyite origins. He believed very vigorously with regard to Iraq that it was a moral obligation, if nothing else, that the United States, whose earlier policies had so enabled Saddam Hussein to visit such depredations on his beleaguered people that they were so enfeebled they couldn't actually rise up and resist this despot, that the United States had a blood debt to pay to the Iraqi people. And when it became possible to rid themselves uh, or to rid the world of this vampire, the United States ought to step up and do it, and do it for those reasons. I remember on the eve of the bombs falling on Baghdad, I had organized a debate in Los Angeles at the 
lovely Art Deco Wiltern Theater, which uh, Brian Lamb broadcast live and then in the usual C-SPAN way, repeated over and over again at mysterious hours of the early morning, so that quite a lot of people that you had no idea would be up at those hours would call you and say, oh, I saw this thing on, on television. It was a debate on uh, American power and intervention in Iraq. Again, this was literally hours before the um, so-called shock and awe was unleashed, featuring Michael Ignatov playing in the usual way Hamlet, Mark Danner, Ernest, to a fault, Christopher Hitchens, and Robert Shear, who some of you with long memories may recall had once been editor of Ramparts, had authored one of the earliest, if not the earliest, but one of the earliest pamphlets against the war, published in 1964 or five, called How the United States Got Involved in Vietnam, and, and then was had a nearly 30-year career as a columnist and correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, making the argument that history was about to repeat itself, not as farce, but yet another tragedy, and that uh, the United States in its arrogance and hubris could not and would not be able to effectively either impose its will or its cultural conceits on other peoples around the world. And even if it could, it would be a bad idea to do so because you would deny to those people the agency of being able to make their own history and thus and own it. I mean, that was his, his argument. So it was, a, it was a vigorous debate. And in fact, if you go back and look at that debate, almost all of the subsequent iterations of the argument descend in one way or another from the arguments that were presented in that evening. And by the way, one of the things about that evening that was so memorable is that we didn't schedule it to be an hour. We had four people, but I thought the issues are, are complicated enough and serious enough. Let's do it for two hours. It was kind of like what we used to think of as a teach-in, although it was more vigorously presented. I was the so-called moderator. Christopher had rather famously written a torrid polemic against Henry Kissinger, which Lewis Lapham had given home to in the pages of Harper's. It was a several part series and it was then issued an expanded version as a, as a little book. It was one of Christopher's pride and joys that this book had apparently got so under Kissinger's skin and had been embraced by various prosecutors around the world, in Spain principally, but also in France, that warrants were readied for Kissinger's arrest on war crimes acts having to do with the Kurds and the East Timor and various other benighted peoples, such that Kissinger had to be careful about how many hours he would spend in a number of cities like Paris. That gave Christopher enormous pleasure. But one of the questions that was asked during the course of this debate is that didn't Christopher regard it as something of a contradiction or didn't it present a problem to him that he was now willing to invest so much confidence in almost the very people, some of whom were very close to Kissinger for a long time, in trying to remake a world when it was so completely obvious by his own views earlier that these people had made so much a mess of the world. It was a circle that Christopher never very easily, in my view, squared. I think it could be said of Christopher, and this is a demerit. Christopher would often say, Yes, you should keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Yes, intellectuals are people who want to complicate things. Things are always very much more complicated than they appear to be. But some things are very simple, and we should be alive to just how simple they are. He was the man who would always be right. I never heard him confess or be wed to doubt or ambiguity. And in that sense, 
that was something of a problem. It enfeebled his, in my view, his worldview, because as devoted as he was to parsing certain contradictions, to putting a big magnifying lens on various forces and factors in, in world events, the world, according to Christopher Hitchens, was largely Manichaean. The other thing to say is that far from Marx or other luminaries of the left having been his North Star, I always thought that there's a line that Gide confides to one of his early journals, which I thought when I encountered it, provided a kind of guiding star for Christopher. And Gide uh, writes in that journal, when I cease getting angry, I will already have begun old age. Christopher woke up every day outraged by something. And he used to say, I have no patience for writers in my trade who wonder what they're going to write about. The New York Times gives it to you for free every day. They give it to you for free. I should also say, however gifted a writer he was, and I think he was a fierce and admirable polemicist, and there was oxygen in just about each and every one of his sentences, he himself, I think, really, in the middle of the night, he was enthralled to writers he recognized as far more gifted than himself. He regarded Martin Amos the way, his long friend, the way other people seemed to regard Christopher. That Amos could just make it up seemed breathtaking to him. That he could play with language in the way that he did was something that Christopher, on his best day, dreamed of being able to do that. He was enthralled to novelists of the first rank or the first aspiration. I should probably close by acknowledging that today would have been Christopher's 63rd birthday. He appeared here two years ago, exactly, with James Fenton, his other good friend. And, and then I think I'll close by relating a story that I haven't, I talk, I haven't spoken publicly, but it's a, a little story that really belongs more to history than to a private grief. I was with him throughout these nearly 19 months of his illness. And during that time, I have to say, everything about it was a cliche except for Christopher. Really, I think it was sort of, in a personal sense, his finest moment. He rarely missed a weekly deadline for his column for Slate. He met all his deadlines for his monthly literary essay for The Atlantic and his monthly columns for The Nation and undertook other writing assignments during that period, the last of which came about around Labor Day, when I got a call from a young editor at Norton, Tom Mayer, who was putting together an 800-page edition of Orwell's journals, some of which have not yet been published in the United States. Mayer had called me up and said, our first choice for someone to write the introduction is Christopher Hitchens. And I said, well, under normal circumstances, Christopher, I would sure be delighted, but I'll ask him. He was mortally, dreadfully ill by this time. And uh, I said, well, do you want to undertake it? He said, my dear chap. Who else but me? Of course. Have them send the book. Well, they send the book. 800 densely written. I mean, he reads the whole thing. He writes a 4,000-word brilliant essay, which will be in Vanity Fair as a first serial excerpt in August. The book is coming out in August. At the end of September, things got very grave. He uh, was back in Houston at the MD Anderson Cancer Clinic. I visited him at the end of September, then in October, and then mid-December, I got the call that, uh, that I should come. So 
I arrived on uh, Tuesday night, and the next day was the 14th, Wednesday. He was by this time down to 121 pounds. He'd lost a third of his body weight. He was being ravaged by a virulent pneumonia. He was doped up with morphine. That day he was still lucid and could speak, although, you know, wasting away. His son, Alexander, 28, was there. His daughter, Sophia, two children by his first wife, Eleni. His daughter, Antonia, who had just turned 18 in September, now a freshman, had just begun at Columbia. His wife, Carol, her 87-year-old father, me, and uh, the next day, Amos arrived at around four in the afternoon, too late for Christopher to muster any sign of recognition, though the doctors, as you know, are very keen to tell you that they know what's in the room, so be careful of what people still are, are, are sufficiently aware, apparently. So that morning on, on Wednesday, uh, we had a conversation, and he said that he was done. He didn't want any more aggressive medical interventions made that he was prepared to die. I'm so grateful that uh, his son Alexander was there in the room with me because otherwise the story I'm about to tell you, nobody would believe me. We're in the room with him. Christopher kind of opens his eyes and gestures for a pad of paper to be brought to him because he wants to write something. So the pad is presented, pen is put in his hand and he begins writing. And then he brings the pad of paper up to his, his face, his brow furrows. He gestures for his son to put his reading glasses on, on him, puts the reading glasses, and he turns the pad like it's an iPad, like, sort of another way, and looks at it. I get up and sort of look at it, and it's just chicken scratches, you know, it's just nonsense hieroglyphs. He looks at it, he lets the pad fall to his lap, he looks up, he says, what are you going to do? And it kind of sinks back a little bit. And then there followed what I have to say was his rosebud moment. He then utters a word. I couldn't quite hear. I said, what did you say? And he says, very distinct, capitalism. I said, capitalism? What about it? And he says, downfall. And those were the last words I ever heard him utter. So I give you, ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Hitchens. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.